0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Robert George, McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University, giving a talk entitled, The Nature and Basis of Religious Freedom. This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, I'm going to begin with, uh, I'm afraid, rather an abstract statement, but I promise you, uh, I'll get it over with, we'll get through this. Uh, And then I'll move on uh, to what I hope will be a good deal more intelligible uh, and in which I will explain uh, more fully the abstract statement at the beginning. So it's just a paragraph, bear with me, goes like this. The starting points of all ethical reflection, whether it's about religious liberty or it's about war or it's about marriage or it's about lying or stealing, all ethical reflection, the starting points of all ethical reflection are those fundamental irreducible aspects of the well-being, the fulfillment, the flourishing of human persons that philosophers like Pat Lee and Di and others refer to as basic human goods. The, the, The label doesn't matter. What matters is the thought that all of our thinking about right and wrong begins with our apprehension, our intelligent grasp of certain ends or purposes as uh, providing reasons for action, whose intelligibility as reasons doesn't depend on any further or deeper reason to which they are mere means or any sub-rational motivation. And that's because what we grasp are basic aspects of the well-being of human persons. Things that are constitutive of our flourishing. These ends, these goods, these purposes are more than merely instrumental ends or purposes. They are the subjects, then, of, as Thomas Aquinas taught us, the very first principles of practical reason that control all rational thinking with a view to acting, whether the acts performed are, in the end, properly judged to be morally good or morally bad. The first principles of practical reason direct our choosing toward what is rationally desirable, because humanly, fulfilling and therefore intelligibly available to choice and away from the privations of those things. It is in the end the integral directiveness of these principles, these first principles of practical reason, that provides the criterion or when specified the set of criteria, the moral norms by which it's possible rationally to distinguish, not just on faith, rationally to distinguish, right from wrong, what's morally good, from what's morally bad, including what is just from what is unjust. Morally good choices are choices that are in line with, fully in line with, all the various aspects of human well-being and fulfillment. In other words, with our fulfillment, our flourishing as human beings, integrally conceived. Morally bad choices are choices that are in one respect or another, or perhaps many respects, out of line with human well-being, human fulfillment, integrally conceived. Now to say that we're through it, we're done, we got through the hard part, to say the very abstract things that I just said in that opening paragraph is simply to spell out philosophically the point made by Martin Luther King in his letter from the Birmingham jail about just and unjust laws, laws that honor people's rights, their dignity, and those that violate them. Now, perhaps you'll recall that the great civil rights champion, sitting in the jail in Birmingham for having broken the law in 1965, anticipated a challenge to the moral goodness of those acts of civil disobedience that landed him behind bars in Birmingham. And now let me suggest to you, uh, parenthetically, as a side note, this is probably a very good time for us to be thinking about the principles of civil disobedience. Back to my text. King anticipated his critics asking the following question. How can you, Dr. King, engage in willful lawbreaking when you yourself had stressed the importance of obedience to law, as indeed King had, in demanding that officials of the southern states conform to the Supreme Court's desegregation ruling In the case of Brown versus Board of Education only a decade earlier. Well, let's listen to King's response to the challenge. The answer, King says, and I quote him, lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. King continues, still quoting, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of Inferiority. Unquote. Very interesting. So there's an account written for a general audience of what makes a law good, bad, just, unjust, in which, interestingly, as I like to point out to my secular liberal friends, he freely quotes and relies on St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, appeals to the law of God, the eternal law, the natural law. Concepts that I say to my secular friends, you guys ought to learn some of them. But the bottom line is really very much in line with that very abstract opening paragraph of mine. So, just laws elevate and ennoble the human personality, or what King in other contexts would call the human spirit. Unjust laws debase and degrade it. Just laws are in line with the human good, the good of the human person, integrally conceived. Unjust laws are ultimately out of line. Now, his point about the morality or immorality of laws is a good reminder that what is true of what is sometimes called personal morality is also true of political morality. The choices and actions of political institutions at every level, like the choices and actions of individuals, can be right or wrong, morally good or morally bad. They can be in line with human well-being and fulfillment in all of its manifold dimensions, or they can fail in any of a range of possible ways to respect the integral flourishing of human persons. In many cases of the failure of laws, policies, and institutions to fulfill the requirements of morality, we speak intelligibly and rightly, and we needn't hesitate to use this language, of a violation of human rights. This is particularly true where the failure is properly characterized as an injustice, failing to honor people's equal worth and dignity, failing to give them, or even actively denying them, what they are due. Now, as my dear friend Mary Ann Glendon points out, it's a mistake to become obsessed with rights language. It's certainly a mistake to suppose that rights are what morality is fundamentally about. At the base of it all is the concept of rights. That's a mistake. It's also a mistake to inflate claims of rights or to talk about rights without understanding the corresponding notion of responsibilities and the importance of responsibilities. So we live in an age when the inflation of rights talk and when the uh, imperialism of rights language has uh, distorted a good deal of ethical thinking and talking. But that shouldn't lead us, as it has led some uh, uh, philosophers, including some Christian philosophers, to suppose that there is no good sense in the use of rights language or that we shouldn't speak of human rights or even of individual rights. No, we can and we should, Uh, within their proper domain and understood as being rooted in duties, which are in turn specifications of the integral directiveness of the values that are constitutive of human flourishing, rights provide a language that enables us to analyze moral problems, well, some moral problems, not all moral problems, well, especially those that have to do with, as not all will have to do with, questions of justice. So I'm okay with the language of rights within those limits. But contrary to the teaching of the late John Rawls and the extraordinarily influential stream of contemporary liberal thought of which he was the leading exponent, I wish to suggest that good is prior to right and indeed to rights. Rawls famously argued that the right is prior to the good, I want to argue, actually, the reverse here. And here's what I mean. To be sure, human rights, including the right to religious liberty, which, as Father Sean has pointed out to us, is fully, robustly embraced by the Catholic Church, articulated in the great document on human dignity, Dignitatis Humane of the Second Vatican Council. Human rights, including the right to religious liberty, are among the moral principles that demand respect from all of us. That quotation from that paragraph that Father Sean gave us makes that so clear. All of us, not just governments, all of us are required to respect religious freedom. But that includes governments and international institutions, which are morally bound not only to respect human rights, including the right to religious freedom, but also to protect them, to play that special role of protecting people's rights against predation by others. To respect persons, to respect their dignity, is to, among other things, honor their rights, including, to be sure, that right that this conference has gathered to lift up to our fellow citizens and to defend, namely the right to religious freedom. Like all moral principles, however, human rights, including the right to religious liberty, are shaped and given content by the human goods they protect. And so here's my big anti-Rawlsian point. The good really is prior to the right because the content of the right and of rights is shaped by the content of the human good, that or human goods, that rights protect. Rights, like other moral principles, are intelligible as rational, action-guiding principles because they are entailments and, at some level at least, specifications of the integral directiveness or prescriptivity of principles of practical reason that direct our choosing toward what is humanly fulfilling and enriching, or as Dr. King would say, uplifting, and away from what is contrary to our well-being as the kind of creatures we are, namely human persons, rational animals of the human sort, the kind. And so, for example, it matters to the identification and defense of the right to life. Let me illustrate my anti-Rawlsian point here. It matters, it's critical to, the identification and defense of the right to life, just to take another right besides religious freedom, a right violated by abortion, the infanticide of handicapped newborns and other physically or mentally disabled persons, the euthanizing of persons suffering from Alzheimer's disease or other dementias, common among the elderly, and all acts of whatever type of the direct killing of innocent human beings, including the killing of captured enemy soldiers or targeting civilians in terror attacks, even in justified wars. It matters to the identification and defense of that right that human life is no mere instrumental good, but is an intrinsic aspect of the integral good of human persons, an integral dimension of our overall flourishing. And it matters, similarly, to the identification and defense of the right to religious liberty. That religion is yet another irreducible aspect of human well-being and fulfillment, what Professor Lee and I would call a basic human good. But of course, this immediately raises the question that should be popping into your minds right now and would certainly pop into the minds of a secular audience. What is religion? If, Professor George, you say that religion is a basic human good, basic aspect of the well-being and fulfillment of human persons, what is it? Notoriously, it's difficult to define religion or to say what counts as a religion and what doesn't count as a religion. My friend Rabbi Mark Gelman says, if it's got prayers and candles, it's a religion. If not, it's a philosophy. So maybe it's something (laughs) like that. The Supreme Court, hands down, every term, we're going to start getting them. They're going to be coming down pretty soon, you know, it's spring. It's like the flowers, like the snowdrops popping up. We're going to be getting, uh, you know, the, the, the dictates now handed down from the Marble Temple in Washington, D.C. about what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. And they're going to be handing down decisions on religion, the religion clause of the First Amendment, the free exercise provision, the, the uh, very important Hobby Lobby case, of course, the establishment clause provision, the... City of Greece case out of New York about prayers before town council meetings. We're going to be handi- We're going to be reading these decisions from the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court who tells us they don't know how to define religion. I don't, I don't envy them the task of defining religion. It is pretty hard. It seems to me you've got to do it if you're going to hand down decisions about the free exercise of religion or the establishment of religion. Uh, but it is difficult. Well, let me take a stab at it, though. Let me me, uh, go where angels fear to tread, at least Supreme Court justices fear fear to tread. Let me tell you what I think religion is. In its fullest and most robust sense, religion is the human person's being in right relation to the divine, the more than merely human source or sources, if there be such, of meaning and value. Now, of course, even the greatest among us in the things of the Spirit fall short of perfection in various ways. But in the ideal of perfect religion, the person would understand as comprehensively and deeply as possible the body of truths about spiritual things and would fully order his or her life and share in a community of faith that is ordered in line with those truths in the perfect realization of the good of religion, one would achieve the relationship that the divine, say, God himself, assuming for a moment the truth of monotheism, wishes us to have with him. Now, of course, different traditions of faith have different views of what constitutes religion in its fullest and most robust sense, but I think all of them could be captured by that def- They have different views about the content. But that general formal definition, I think, can accommodate all of them. But there are different doctrines, different scriptures, the Bible, the Koran, the, the Bhagavad Gita, different structures of authority, different ideas of what is true about spiritual things and what it means to be in proper relationship to the more than merely human sources of meaning and value that different traditions understand as divinity. For my part... I believe that reason has a very large role to play for each of us in deciding where spiritual truth most robustly is to be found. By reason here, I mean not only our capacity for practical reasoning and moral judgment, but also our capacities for understanding and evaluating claims of all sorts—logical, historical, scientific, and so forth. If you're trying to figure out what the truth is, you're trying to engage the truth claims, of different faiths. Take Christianity, for example. You're going to be using the old noggin, the intellect, the mind, to assess all sorts of claims, not just the moral ones, those, those, those are important, but historical ones, scientific ones. Did Jesus rise for the dead, from the dead or didn't he? That's pretty important. If you think he did, you ought to be a Christian. If you don't think he did, probably shouldn't be a Christian. Now, that's not a logical question. It's not actually a moral question. That's an historical question. And there's some evidence out there to be assessed. Is the testimony of the apostles reliable or not? What do you think? Did they make it up? Is it likely that they were deluded? What does the whole weight of evidence taking everything into account say? So I think, and frankly, I think most Catholics tend to think that reason really does have a very big role to play. But others need not agree with me or with us about that in order to affirm with me that there is a distinct human good of religion, a good that is uniquely architectonic in shaping one's pursuit of and participation in all the other basic human goods, all the other aspects of human well-being and fulfillment, a good, namely religion, that one begins to realize and participate in from the moment one begins the quest, the inquiry, aimed at understanding the more than merely human sources of meaning and value, there be such, and the effort to live authentically, by ordering one's life in line with one's best judgments of conscience of what the truth is in religious matters. So now I've given you an an, an argument about how we ought to think about religion in its most robust sense, and an argument about how we begin to realize the human good of religion, to participate in it, to act on its intelligible appeal, when we first begin raising the questions, where do we come from? What is our destiny? Do we have a special dignity? What is the source of that dignity? Is there a higher law above the merely human law? Do I have responsibilities to do unto others as I would have them do unto my, to me? These questions, which the great existential questions that all of us are prompted by our humanity really to ask. You know, this, is not, this is not questions people only ask in Chicago or Steubenville or Princeton and only in the 21st century. We don't ask them enough in the 21st century as a matter of fact. These are questions that people across the globe in all cultures at all times, in all places, ask. We can't stop asking them. And we would be diminished as human persons if we tried to stop asking them. Indeed, we wouldn't want our children to live lives that don't involve, at some level, at some time, asking those questions. Even my old colleague from New College, Oxford, Richard Dawkins, with whom I've eaten many lunches, drunk many coffees, had many arguments. Even Dawkins wouldn't want his kids going through life not asking those great existential questions, even though his own answers to those questions are not the answer that a believer would give. Still, there is a value that we begin to realize and that even Dawkins can see we begin to realize, a human good, an aspect of the integral human good that we begin to realize when we seriously ask those questions and resolve to live lives of authenticity, of integrity, by bringing our actions into line with our conscientious judgments, even if they are atheistic. where we resolve, for example, that having reached an atheistic position, a position of unbelief, I will not go through the charade of you know, attending a religious service and receiving Holy Communion in order to uh, fit in with my community or uh, avoid losing my job or what have you. Now, if I'm right, then the existential raising of religious questions, the honest identification of answers, and the fulfilling of what one sincerely believes to be one's duties in light of those answers are all parts of the human good of religion, a good whose pursuit is an indispensable feature of the comprehensive flourishing of a human being. If I'm right, in other words, then man truly is, intrinsically and by nature, a religious being. Homo religiosus, to borrow a concept, or at least a couple of words of Latin from Eliade. And the flourishing of man's spiritual life is integral to his all-round well-being and fulfillment. But if that's true, then respect for a person's well-being, or more simply, respect for the person, demands respect for his or her flourishing, flourishing as a seeker of truth, a seeker of religious truth, the truths about the highest and most important things, and as a man or woman who lives in line with his best judgments of what is true in spiritual matters. And that, in turn, requires respect for his or her liberty in the religious quest, the quest to understand religious truth and order one's life in line with it. So if I'm right, then what I've given is a justification for the title of the Declaration on Religious Freedom of the Second Vatican Council. If I'm right, then religious freedom really is integral to, an essential component of, respecting the dignity of man, human dignity, the dignity of the human person. It's not an accident that the Fathers of the Second Vatican Council chose that title for that document. Now, because faith of any type, including religious faith, cannot be authentic, it can't be faith, unless it is free, respect for the person, that is to say respect for the person's dignity, as a free and rational creature requires respect for his or her religious liberty. That's why it makes sense from the point of view of reason, and not merely from the point of view of the revealed teaching of a particular faith, to understand religious freedom as a fundamental human right, which is what Dignitatis Humanae does. And you notice, those of you who have read the document, that the document presents a natural law argument, an argument that does not appeal to the data of Revelation in the first half before turning to what can be said in support of the idea of religious freedom from the data of Revelation, from the scriptural sources in the second half. Now interestingly and tragically, in times past and even in some places today, regard for a person's spiritual well-being has been the premise and motivating factor for denying religious liberty were conceiving of it in a cramped and restricted way. Before the Catholic Church embraced the robust conception of religious freedom that honors the civil right to give public witness and expression to sincere religious views, even where erroneous from the Church's point of view, some Catholics rejected the idea of a right to religious freedom on the theory that only the truth has rights. Error has no rights. You are all familiar with that slogan. And that was a real contest in the Church, in a, at the, a contest at the Council. The idea was that the state, under favoring conditions, should not only publicly identify itself with Catholicism as the true faith, but forbid religious advocacy or proselytizing that could lead people into religious error and apostasy. Now, the mistake here, I believe, was not in the premise. Namely, religion is a great human good, and the truer the religion, the better for the fulfillment of the believer. Go back to what I said about religion in the robust sense. That's true. That premise is true. It's the premise of a bad conclusion, but that premise is true. The mistake is not in the premise. The mistake, rather, was in the supposition made by some that the good of religion was not being advanced or participated in outside the context of the one true faith, and that it could be reliably protected and advanced by placing civil restrictions enforceable by agencies of the state on the advocacy of religious ideas in rejecting this supposition, the fathers of the Second Vatican Council did not embrace the idea that error has rights. They noticed, rather, that persons have rights, and they have rights even when they are in error. And among those rights, integral to authentic religion as a fundamental and irreducible aspect of human well-being, Is the right to express and even advocate in line with one's sense of one's conscientious obligations what one believes to be true about spiritual matters, even if one's beliefs are in some way or another less than fully sound, and indeed, even if they are false? The denial that Jesus rose from the dead, the denial that Jesus is the Son of God, the denial that there is a God. Now, when I have assigned the document Dignitatis Humanae in courses of my own addressing questions of religious liberty, I've always stressed to my students the importance of reading that document together with another document of the Second Vatican Council, and that is the document on the non Christian religions called Nostra Etate. Whether one is Catholic or not, I don't think it's possible to achieve a rich understanding of the Declaration on Religious Liberty and the developed teaching of the Catholic Church on religious freedom without considering what the Council Fathers proclaim in the Declaration on Non-Christian Religions. Now, Nostra etate is famous, but it's famous only for one thing, and now the one thing is a really important thing, uh, and so it deserves to be famous for this thing, but often people think it's only about this thing, and the, that thing is, of course, as many of you know, it's Treatment of the relationship of the Christian Church, the Catholic Church, to the Jewish community. the The document repudiates anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, the uh, the side of de- the charge of deicide against the Jews, the persecution of Jews, which Catholics, including churchmen, had been involved in, as had so many other uh, people over the uh, over the centuries. And that repudiation it's a wonderful statement, and the the rich account of the church's continuing and living relationship with the Jewish people, the, um, as, the as the council puts it, the, the uh, root of the good olive tree or the trunk of the good olive tree onto which the wild branches of the Gentiles have been uh, grafted. That uh, is what people think of when they think of Nostra but actually it's about more than that. It's about other religions and the relationship of the church to the other world religions as well. And in Nostra Aetate, the fathers of the council pay tribute, I quote them, to all that is true and holy in non-Christian faiths, implying and then explicitly saying that there is much that is true and worthy and good in faiths such as Hinduism and Buddhism and especially Judaism, of course, and in Islam. Now in doing so, the Fathers give recognition to the ways in which religion, even where it does not include the defining content of what the Fathers, as Catholics, believe to be religion in its fullest and most robust sense, namely the incarnation of Jesus Christ, nevertheless enriches, ennobles, and fulfills the human person in the spiritual dimension of his being. And this, the Council argues, is to be honored and respected because the dignity of the human person requires it. Now, naturally, the non-recognition of Christ as the Son of God must count for the fathers and all Catholics as a falling short, a serious falling short in the non-Christian faiths. Even the Jewish faith, in which Christianity is itself rooted and which stands, according to Catholic teaching, in an unbroken and unbreakable covenant with God, just as the proclamation of Christ as the Son of God must count as an error in Christianity from a Jewish or Muslim point of view. But, the fathers teach, this does not mean that Judaism and Islam are simply false and without merit, just as neither Judaism nor Islam teaches that Christianity is simply false and without merit. On the contrary, these traditions the fathers teach enrich the lives of their faithful in their spiritual dimensions, thus contributing vitally to their fulfillment, though the fullness of truth does not reside in them. Now, the Catholic Church does not have a monopoly on the natural law reasoning by which I am today explicating and defending the human right to religious liberty. But the Church, of course, does have a long and deep commitment to such reasoning, and a long experience with it. And in Dignitatis Humanae, the fathers of the council present a natural law argument, as I've noted, for religious freedom, indeed beginning with that argument before they turn, as I said, to the sources of revelation that support it. So let me ask you to linger with me just a bit longer over these key Catholic texts so that I can illustrate by the teachings of our faith and not just, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, and not, not just on the basis of my own authority, how religious leaders and believers and not just statesmen concerned to craft national or international policy can incorporate into their understanding of the basic human right to religious liberty principles and arguments available to all men and women of goodwill and sincerity by virtue of what the late Professor Rawls once referred to as our common human reason, the thing we all have in common as human persons. So let me quote at some length now from Nostra Aetate to give you an appreciation of the rational basis of the Catholic Church's affirmation of the good of religion as manifested in various world faiths. I do this in order to show how one faith, in this case our faith, Catholicism, can root its defense of a robust conception of freedom of religion not in a mere modus vivendi, or mutual non-aggression pact with other faiths, or what the late Judith Schlar labeled a liberalism of fear, or much less in religious relativism, the idea that all religions are true or false, equally true or equally false, or indifferentism, it doesn't matter what is true and false in religion, but rather in a rational affirmation of the good of religion as embodied and made available to people in and through traditions of faith. So here is what Nostra Aetate says, and I'll quote it as I say at length. Throughout history, even to the present day, there is found among different peoples a certain awareness of a hidden power, which lies behind the course of nature and the events of human life. At times there is present even a recognition of a supreme being and still more of a father. This awareness and recognition results in a way of life that is imbued with a deep religious sense. The religions which are found in more advanced civilizations endeavor by way of well-defined concepts and exact language to answer these questions. Thus, in Hinduism, men explore the divine mystery and express it both in the limitless riches of myth and the accurately defined insights of philosophy. They seek release from the trials of the present life by ascetical practices, profound meditation, and recourse to God in confidence and love. Buddhism, in its various forms, testifies to the essential inadequacy of this changing world. It proposes a way of life by which men can, with confidence and trust, attain a state of perfect liberation and reach supreme illumination, either through their own efforts or by the aid of divine help. So, too, other religions, which are found throughout the world, attempt in their own ways to calm the hearts of men by outlining a program of life covering doctrine, moral precepts, and sacred rites. The Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these religions. She has a high regard for the manner of life and conduct, the precepts and doctrines, which, although although differing in many ways from her own teaching, nevertheless often reflect truths which enlighten all men. Yet she proclaims, and is duty bound to proclaim without fail, Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In him, in whom God reconciled all things to himself, men find the fullness of their religious life. Now I continue quoting, the church therefore urges her sons to enter with prudence and charity into discussion and collaboration with members of other religions. Let Christians, while witnessing to their own faith and way of life, acknowledge, preserve, and encourage the spiritual and moral truths found among non-Christians. The Church also has a high regard for the Muslims. They worship God, who is one, living and subsistent, merciful and almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, who has also spoken to men. They strive to submit themselves without reserve to the decrees of God, just as Abraham submitted himself to God's plan, to whose faith Muslims link their own. Although not acknowledging Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. His virgin mother they also honor and even at times devoutly invoke. Further, they await the day of judgment and the reward of God following the resurrection of the dead. For this reason, they highly esteem an upright life and worship God, especially by way of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And then the the, the fathers turn to the Jewish people, continuing to quote, Oh, I'm sorry. First, uh, they say a little more, which I should quote first, about uh, Christians and Muslims. Over the centuries, many quarrels and dissensions have arisen between Christians and Muslims. This sacred council now pleads with all to forget the past and urges that a sincere effort be made to achieve mutual understanding for the benefit of all men. Let them together preserve and promote peace, liberty, justice, and moral values. And then the council Uh, Father's turn to the Jewish people, sounding the depths of the mystery, which is the Church. This sacred council remembers the spiritual ties which link the people of the New Covenant to the stock of Abraham. The Church of Christ acknowledges that in God's plan of salvation, the beginning of her faith and election is to be found in the patriarchs and Moses and in the prophets. She professes that all Christ's faithful, who is men of faith, are sons of Abraham are included in the same patriarch's call and that the salvation of the Church is mystically prefigured in the exodus of God's chosen people from the land of bondage. On this account, the Church cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament by way of that people with whom God in his inexpressible mercy established the ancient covenant. Nor can she forget that she draws nourishment from that good olive tree onto which the wild olive branches of the Gentiles have been grafted. The church believes that Christ, who is our peace, has through his cross reconciled Jews and Gentiles and made them one in himself. Okay, so there's a long quote that I suspect most Catholics don't know anything about from this great conciliar document. Bishops gathered in an ecumenical council reflecting in the modern period on our history uh, and on the... uh, different faiths that are manifested throughout the world, declares what I just read. Now, of course, from the point of view of any believer, of any faith, certainly ours included, the the further away one gets from the truth of faith in all of its dimensions, in its wholeness, what the Council Fathers in the passage I just quoted referred to as the fullness of religious life, the less fulfillment is available. So there's more fulfillment available, the more truth there is available. The less truth, the less fulfillment. Not none, but not as much. But that does not mean that even a primitive and superstition-laden faith, much less the faiths of those advanced civilizations as the Council Fathers call them, is utterly devoid of value, or that there is no right to religious liberty for people who practice such a faith. Nor does it mean that atheists have no right to religious freedom. The fundaments of respect for the good of religion require that civil authority respect and in appropriate ways even nurture conditions and circumstances in which people can engage in the sincere religious quest and live lives of authenticity, reflecting their best conscientious judgments as to the truth of spiritual matters. To compel an atheist to perform acts that are premised on theistic beliefs that he or she cannot in good conscience share, is to deny him the fundamental bit of the good of religion that is his, namely, living with honesty and integrity in line with his best judgments about ultimate reality. Coercing him to perform religious acts does him no good, since faith really must be free. And it dishonors his dignity as a free and rational person. So the violation of liberty is worse than futile. Now, of course, there are limits. There have to be limits to the freedom that must be respected for the sake of the good of religion and the dignity of the human person as a being whose integral fulfillment includes the spiritual quest and the ordering of one's life in line with one's best judgments as to truth in spiritual matters. Gross evil, even grave injustice, can be committed by sincere people for the sake of religion. Unspeakable wrongs can be done by people seeking sincerely to get right with God or the gods or their conception of ultimate reality, whatever it is. The presumption in favor of respecting religious freedom must, for the sake of the human good and the dignity of the human person as a free and rational creature, be powerful and broad. But it can't be unlimited. Even the great end of getting right with God cannot justify a morally bad means, even for the sincere believer. I don't doubt the sincerity of the Aztecs, the ancient Aztecs, in practicing human sacrifice or the sincerity of those in the history of various traditions of faith, including our own, who used coercion and even torture in the cause of what they believed was religiously required. But these things are deeply wrong and need not and should not be tolerated in the name of religious freedom. To suppose otherwise is to back oneself into the awkward position of supposing that violations of religious freedom and other injustices of equal gravity must be respected for the sake of religious freedom, and obviously that can't be true. Still, to overcome the broad and powerful presumption in favor of religious liberty, to be justified in requiring the believer to do something contrary to his faith, or forbidding the believer to do something that his faith requires, political authority must meet a heavy burden. The legal test in the United States under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act represents one way, I think a good way, of capturing that presumption and that burden. This is the test that the Supreme Court is now applying in the Hobby Lobby case and will apply in the Little Sisters of the Poor case and the other cases that are coming up uh, uh, concerning the Health and Human Services, abortion drug and contraceptives uh, mandates. This is an act of Congress uh, signed into law by President Clinton in 1993 that basically imposes this standard and test to justify a law that bears negatively on religious freedom, even a neutral law of general applicability, must be supported by a compelling state interest, a very high standard, and represent the least restrictive or intrusive means of protecting or serving that interest. That's the test. If the Supreme Court applies that test honestly, there is no way the government can win. There's no way Hobby Lobby can lose. Unfortunately, justices don't always apply uh, these things honestly. Um, driven by an agenda, you can get cases like Dred Scott against Sanford and Roe versus Wade. Still, I uh, read the transcript and I liked uh, what I read. Uh, people who were in the courtroom tell me they liked what they heard. Really it's an easy case uh, because it's hard to justify, uh, the impossible, really to justify the mandates. Uh, by reference to either of the two standards the supplying of those drugs is not a compelling state interest and even if it were it certainly wouldn't the 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 mandating of employers to cover the insurance to provide insurance that covers the drugs doesn't possibly qualify as the least intrusive or restrictive means in any event what matters for my argument here today is simply that i think the test is the right test and it's a test that i think any country should adopt some version of as part of its fundamental law, any country that is serious about respecting religious freedom. Now, as to the test, we can debate as a matter of American constitutional law or as a matter of policy whether it is or should be up to courts or legislators to decide when exemptions to general neutral law should be granted for the sake of religious freedom or to determine when the presumption in favor of religious freedom has been overcome. This is a debate that's really, uh, in the United States, a debate among constitutional lawyers. It's not about the substance of the test. That's a debate about who should apply the test. Should it be up to the legislatures to determine when an exemption should be granted, or should it be up to the, uh, to the courts? Now, that's not a question in the Hobby Lobby case or the Little Sisters of the Poor case. And it's not a question uh, simply because Congress itself has decided that the judiciary will be empowered by this legislation, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to apply the test. So uh, the the debates that those of you who know anything about modern constitutional uh, interpretation will recognize as the debates that came out of the Oregon versus Smith case, the Employment Division of Oregon against Smith case, those issues are not implicated here, simply because we have a statutory norm that everybody agrees applies uh, to the case. But in any event, Regardless of how any particular culture decides the question of whether to let judges apply the test or to leave the application of the test in the hand of legislators, the substantive matter of what religious freedom demands from those who exercise the levers of state power should be something on which all reasonable people of goodwill across the religious and political spectrums should agree should agree, precisely because it is a matter capable of being settled by our common human reason. And as a matter of fact, RFRA, the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was a matter articulating a test on which reasonable people of goodwill across the spectrum disagreed. I'm sorry, agreed with each other. It had the support of the left and the right. That legislation was supported by the ACLU and the Christian Coalition, the People for the American Way and the Moral Majority. And it was the right principle. They were right to be on that side of the argument. That was, that was a rare moment. And of course, that's now gone. Because the groups on the left that used to support RIFRA no longer support it. Now they attack it. Now they claim when they see it that it constitutes discrimination. That's why they opposed it on the state level in Arizona and are opposing it in Kansas and are opposing it in Mississippi. What happened? Why do they now oppose so vehemently something they supported so enthusiastically? The answer to that question is like the answer to so many other questions today same sex marriage. Thank you very much faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com